When God created the world, it was good. In fact, Genesis 1.31 tells us it was very good. In this very good world, everything was exactly the way God intended for it to be. Humans had a perfect communion with God. The relationship of a husband and wife with one another uh, was just as it should be. All of their needs were perfectly met. They had a God-given purpose to tend and to keep the garden that God had given them. There was no sin. There was no sickness. There was no death. There was no lack. There were no natural disasters. There was no oppression. There was no anything that wasn't very good. God was the king and his rule was followed over all the earth. And while all human needs were met in the garden, there was still a need for obedience to God. Adam was warned that there was one tree in the middle of the garden which was forbidden to him. He was also warned that there would be terrible consequences for violating God's one rule that was given to him. And in a moment of temptation, when Satan came to tempt Adam and Eve to eat what God had forbidden them from eating, they, they did eat of the tree. And their disobedience and really what it was was rebellion. They knew what God had said and they chose to do other than what God had said. It had horrific consequences for all humanity and all creation. All of creation became broken in that moment. Some of the consequences were the relationship between God and humans was severed. The relationship between man and woman became one of blame and disunity. There was creation itself was cursed. Humans died spiritually. Physical death entered the world. Humans were born in rebellion against God. Humanity now walks a path of rebellion against God that is marked out by Satan. The natural state of humanity is as children of wrath. Humans are naturally blinded to their need for Jesus. The entire world lies under the sway of Satan. Humanity struggles against evil spiritual forces. Satan roams the earth freely, seeking someone to devour. In short, God's original purpose for the earth and humanity was short-circuited. The earth and the people of the earth were no longer very good. And this began a horrendous cycle of sin, pain, disease, injustice, corruption, poverty, suffering, ruin, confusion, loss, and death. All of which continues today. Everything that is wrong and broken in our world is wrong and broken because sin and rebellion entered the world when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. God could have left us in this condition. And he would have been righteous to do so, but God had better plans for his people. God gave the promise in that day of a Messiah who would come and provide the way of salvation to the world. He told Satan that he would strike the Messiah's heel and he would bruise him, but the Messiah would strike the final and fatal blow. The Messiah would crush Satan's head. The Messiah would come, he would destroy Satan's power, and eventually Satan himself. He would do all of this to reconcile humanity and God and restore God's original plans for creation and humanity. Hundreds of years before first Christmas morning, God had a prophet named Isaiah write down something about what the Messiah would do when he came to give people a picture of what the mission of the Messiah would be. So if you haven't already opened your Bible to Isaiah 61 should be page 565 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. 
I'd like to preach the whole chapter, but we only have time for the first three verses. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the humble. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the cloak of praise instead of a disheartened spirit. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The title of the message this morning is the mission, of the Messiah. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We thank you today for the opportunity we have to gather. Thank you, Lord, for this day and what it represents, the birth of our Savior. Lord, we are thankful that you looked down from heaven and when you saw us in our sin and rebellion, Father, that you looked with love and compassion. And that love and compassion, Father, was it was active. You did something about what you saw. You sent Jesus to come. To live the life we should have lived. To die the death we deserve to die. So that we could have a salvation we could never earn or deserve. We thank you for saving us. For keeping us. For not giving up on us when we have failed you and have rebelled against you. Thank you for the freedom we have to gather here today to study your word. Oh God, we need you today. Let your Holy Spirit come. Take your word and make it living and active in our lives. Help us all to grow in our understanding of the good news about Jesus. Help us all to make progress in the freedom that Jesus came to give. Let us surrender our lives to him so he would bind up our broken hearts. Fill me with your spirit today. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech and help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you once said or what you want done. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. At first glance, this passage may not immediately stand out as a message about the Messiah. could easily say, well, this is just Isaiah. This is a message about that God has given him to share with the people of Israel about his mission there upon the earth. And, and it's for sure it does apply to Isaiah to some extent. But if we had time, we would go to look at Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 21. And we would find Jesus in the synagogue stand and, and read from this part of the book of Isaiah. He would read it. He would fold up the scroll. He would sit down and he would say, Today this message has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus claimed he was the fulfillment of this particular passage. This passage powerfully 
and beautifully explains the anointing and the mission of the Messiah who was to come. We're told in verse 1 that the Spirit of the Lord God would be upon him because he was anointed. Now, the word anointed is a significant word in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were three offices who were anointed with oil. Prophets, priests, and kings. The anointing with oil symbolized the Holy Spirit's power or His anointing upon them, enabling them to do the job God had called them to do. What we learn from this in part is that Jesus is the anointed one who perfectly fulfills all of these roles. But in fulfilling all of these roles, it tells us something about what Jesus came to do. First, it tells us Jesus is anointed to bring good news. Now, whether something is good news or not depends on the person receiving it. Right. So, for example, think about maybe the midterm elections. The same results went out to everyone. For some, it was good news for how the results were. For others, it was bad news. It was the same message, but it was received in different ways by different people. Now, the idea that the same message can be received by different people in different ways, but still be one message is important. Because Jesus only brings the one message. And the message is good news. It began to be announced on the night of His birth. The kids read it. It was told it would be good news of great joy. And it was for all people. Because a Savior had been born who was Christ Jesus the Lord. The good news of great joy for all people is a message of forgiveness for sins. It is a message of the removal of condemnation for sin. It is a message of reconciliation with God. It is a message of being born again. It is a message of being filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, indwelt constantly by the Holy Spirit. It is a message of being adopted as children of the Most High God. It is a message of being able to become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a message of being brought to spiritual life from spiritual death. It is a message of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. It is a message of receiving a new heart, a new spirit, and a new relationship with God. And much, much more. This is all part of the good news of great joy for all people that Jesus gives. But if someone doesn't like this message, If someone doesn't hear good news in this message, it doesn't mean the message is flawed. If someone doesn't like this message, if it doesn't seem to be good news to them, it doesn't mean the message needs to be changed until they find it as good news. There is one message, and that one message is good news of great joy. It is for all people, and it is about Christ Jesus the Lord. And if someone doesn't find the message of Jesus to be good news of great joy, it is not the message that's wrong, it's them. So while the message is good news of great joy, and while it is for all people, the reality is not everyone will always see it as good news. But some people will always see the message of Jesus to be good news of great joy. Who are the people who find this message to always be good news of great joy? Well, 
My Bible says the humble. The King James says the meek. The New King James, the NIV, the New Living Translation, the Christian Standard and the ESV say the poor. And the New American Standard 1995 says the afflicted. To bring good news to thee, however it's translated in your Bible. Now, Luke in the Gospel account calls it poor. So I'll use poor. Now, when you understand poor in the Old Testament, you see those other translation choices aren't wrong. They're just expressions of what it meant to be poor in the Old Testament times. Poor in the Old Testament wasn't just a physical reality. They were poverty stricken. But it also described their spiritual attitude. The poor were poverty stricken. And they were unable to save themselves. And so they looked to God for help and deliverance in their time of need. The poor went to God for help and deliverance in their time of need, but they went with an attitude of humility. They were humble as they went to God. They recognized God didn't know them anything. And they didn't go to God with an entitlement attitude, demanding God do something for them because their lives were so hard. Being poor, they were vulnerable. And as such, were prone to be afflicted by the rich and the powerful. The poor had no help and no hope apart from God. To the poor, to the afflicted, to the humble, to the meek. Jesus' invitation is good news of great joy. But depending on your attitude, you may not recognize it as such. For example... Imagine you're starving and dehydrated, but you have no money to buy food or drink. And then someone who has more than you could possibly imagine invites you to come over and get all you want for free. They just want you to delight yourself in all of the abundance they have to offer. Well, if you're starving and you're dehydrated and you have no money... That is good news of great joy. But if you're already rich and you're already satisfied and you think you're increased with goods and in need of nothing. Well, that invitation wouldn't really mean all that much to you. But that wouldn't make the invitation bad. That wouldn't make the invitation flawed. That wouldn't make the invitation wrong. And that's the way it is with the invitation of Jesus. Someone who doesn't find in the invitation of Jesus good news of great joy simply isn't hungry enough and thirsty enough for the abundance Jesus offers. Let me show you an example of different people and talk about how they might respond to the same good news of Jesus. Jesus tells a story about two men. He tells them to people who trusted in themselves. These people were not hungry for what Jesus offered. And they felt that they were righteous. And they looked down upon other people. And he said two people went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, if you're not familiar with that, a Pharisee and in the culture to which Jesus is speaking, that would have been considered the best of the best. These were the cream of the crop of all that a good Jewish person was supposed to be. 
Tax collector was the opposite end of the spectrum. The worst of the worst. But the worst thing a Jewish person could do was become a tax collector and work for the oppressive Roman Empire. So two people, a righteous Pharisee, an unrighteous tax collector, go to the temple to pray. Now the Pharisee, he stood and he began to pray this in regard to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, crooked adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice in a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Now, let me say, you can, you can sort of hear the self-sufficiency in this man's voice, in his prayer. He, he talks about how, how good he is and all of the good deeds he does. Now, let me be clear. This man is extremely religious. But a person doesn't have to be religious to have this attitude. All a person has to be to have this attitude is someone that feels self-sufficient. Someone who would say, I'm thankful I'm not like these other people. Whoever these other people they're looking down on are. Look at all of the good things I do. Look at how moral I am. Right? A religious person can have this attitude. And an atheist can have this attitude. And anybody on the spectrum in between there can have this sort of self-sufficient, self-satisfied, look at me, I'm pretty wonderful attitude. And then there was the other guy. And he stood some distance away. So, just to get again the picture, the Pharisee comes in and the tax collector stands at a distance. So imagine this was the temple. The Pharisee, he just walked right on up. He walks up as close as he could get to the place where God would be. He's as close as, I mean, look, at, I, I deserve to be right here. The tax collector, though, tax collector doesn't feel he deserves to be that close to God. And so he, he stands really far off. He stands all the way back as far as he can be, but still be in the temple. He doesn't want to get too close to God. He doesn't deserve that place of being close to God. And as he prays, he doesn't even raise his eyes toward heaven. He, he beats his chest and he says, oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector knows what he is. He knows what he's done. He knows the, the life he's lived and where he's at. Now, if these two men were told the same good news, great joy about a Savior who came, and this Savior offered them forgiveness for sins, this Savior offered them reconciliation with God, this Savior would remove their condemnation, well, the Pharisee would scoff at the idea. He doesn't need anything like that. After all, he's not like other people. He doesn't give in to those kinds of carnal sins. He does a lot of good deeds. He doesn't need anyone to save him. He has essentially saved himself through his good deeds. The tax collector, on the other hand, would weep for joy at the possibility that the God of heaven would be reconciled to him. 
That he could know God and he could love God and he could be forgiven by God and he could be born again through God and he could experience the presence of God in his life. And we see this is the point Jesus is making in the passage. And I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other one, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. The invitation of Jesus is for all people. And the poor, the afflicted, the humble, and the meek will always see it as good news of great joy. So Jesus came and he was anointed to bring good news to the poor. But he also, we see in verse 1, he has been sent to bind up the broken hearted. This is, I think, a most beautiful picture. At every point in history, there are people whose hearts are broken by innumerable griefs. Life is hard. And people all around us are hurting. Their hearts are broken because of their sin. Their hearts are broken because of the sin of others. Their hearts are broken because they are crushed with grief. Their hearts are broken because they've been abandoned. Their hearts are broken because they've been betrayed. Hearts are broken because they're just miserable in life. Their hearts are broken because they're lonely. And they feel no one cares. Their hearts are broken because they despair at what they what appears to be the just the pointlessness of life. Their hearts are broken because they're bitter. The fact life hasn't turned out as they imagined. Their hearts are broken because of their addiction. Their hearts are broken because of the addiction of another. Their hearts are broken because of the death of a loved one. Their hearts are broken because they've been victimized. Their hearts are broken by any number of things. The reasons people's hearts are broken are as numerous and as varied as the people themselves. But whatever the reason, Jesus came to bind up the broken hearts. The picture of Jesus binding up the broken hearts is beautiful. Picture a heart lying shattered on the ground. In a million pieces. And Jesus, he walks up and he kneels down and he picks up the pieces with his own hands and he begins to put the heart back together the way it was supposed to be. Now, if you've ever shattered something fragile and then put it back together with super glue, you know that there's often tiny imperfections. And the way it was put back together. Maybe it looked okay. But if you really examined it. You could see the imperfections. Where the glue was holding it together. And it wasn't one smooth piece. This is not the way Jesus. Binds up broken hearts. The way Jesus binds up broken hearts. It leaves them new and healed. According to the book of Ezekiel. We are invited by Jesus to come to him and cast all of our cares upon him. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5 and 7. 
There are no qualifications on this invitation. We aren't invited to cast just the cares about our sins on Jesus. We aren't invited to only cast our cares about the sins of others on Jesus. We aren't only invited to to cast on Jesus our cares about the salvation of a loved one. We aren't invited to only cast our spiritual cares on Jesus. It's not what it says. No, we are invited to cast all of our cares on Jesus. For one reason and one reason only. He cares for us. That's what it says. What do we find when we cast our broken hearted cares on Jesus? We'll look at the end of verse 2. To comfort all who mourn. We find a Savior who comforts us in our mourning. That's a part of the way He binds up our broken hearts. God's Word tells us that blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Notice the repetition of the word comfort. Anytime you find the repetition of a word or a phrase in a particular passage of Scripture, you should see it as God emphasizing something to us. In this passage, what's being emphasized is the reality of being comforted in our troubles. Troubles like having broken hearts. The God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. Also notice the comfort we receive is proportional to our suffering. For as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. The the picture is suffering may abound in our life. But when it does, the comfort we receive from Jesus, it abounds as well. He doesn't have this much comfort to give to us when we have this much suffering. If we have this much suffering, he has this much comfort. He has more comfort to give. The more our suffering abounds, the more the comfort we receive from Jesus abounds. If our hearts are broken are overwhelmed by burdens and hurts, then we need to know there is a Savior who cares. He invites us to come to Him, to give Him our burden so that we can receive from Him His rest. And when we do this, we're promised that we can find rest for our souls. What does it look like when our broken hearts are bound up and we find rest for our souls? Well, we're told in verse 3. It looks like being given garland or beauty for ashes. It looks like being given the oil of gladness instead of mourning. It looks like being given the garment of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness. It looks like being made into an oak of righteousness 
planted by the Lord for the glory of the Lord. Jesus came to bind up the broken hearts. And then verse 2. I'm sorry, still verse 1, the end of verse 1. To proclaim release to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, who preaches and proclaims release to the captives, freedom to the prisoners. But but Jesus not only proclaims there is release, there is freedom. Jesus actually came to give us release, to give us freedom. Jesus is able to set us free from all of the things that enslave us. God's Word gives us many things that can enslave us. Sin can enslave us. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Let's just stop there for just a second. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Sin promises freedom. Sin says this is the path of joy and life and ultimate freedom. But what sin truly delivers is slavery and death always, without exception. Now the slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son does. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus delivers true, legitimate freedom from sin. We don't have to be enslaved by our sinful urges, our sinful desires, and the sinful actions any longer. Jesus is able to set people free. Guilt for sin can be enslaving. I've been in a place in my life where I refused to confess my sin. And I felt the enslaving nature of my guilt. What I found is I I can numb the guilt for my sin in all manner of ways. I, I can numb it through movies, through books, and generally just escape through one way or another, having to, to think about the guilt for my sin. But but I can only do it for a time. Because there's always a moment when I'm alone in the dark. And it's just me and God. And the enslaving nature of my guilt comes back. But there's freedom to be found in Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I wish I had time to just go all in on this passage. But let me just point out a few things. If you have repented of your sins and you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, this passage is true of you. There is now, right now, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. It's not there's some point in the future in which you get yourself squared away and you get everything fixed and everything's lined out. And on that day when you learn to live perfectly, there's no condemnation. That's not the greatness of what Jesus does. There is right now. In this moment, no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. You say, but Brother Stacey, you don't know how I struggle with my sin, how often I fail. I don't. But I know the passage just before that. I know just before that where the Apostle Paul says the things I don't want to do, those I do. 
the things I want to do, those I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? And then he says, Christ Jesus will. And in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. This verse isn't for those who have it all together. I mean, it is for them, but it's not just for them. This verse isn't for the perfect, the entirely sanctified. Those who don't know what it is to feel their sinful nature pull them into sin. This verse is for those who struggle and fail. Mourn and regret. Confess and forsake and struggle and fail. And mourn and regret and confess and forsake. The born again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will never, ever face the condemnation, the judgment of God. They are free, forever free. If you know what it is to be enslaved by the guilt for your sin, let me offer you the Lord Jesus Christ, who can set you free from guilt, from condemnation, so that you walk in the freedom that comes through knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Spiritual defeat. Many people struggle in their spiritual life. As we just said, they struggle, they fail, they struggle some more. It says, whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one that overcomes the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? There is victory to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the promise of victory doesn't mean there aren't struggles. And the promise of victory doesn't mean there aren't battles to fight. But the promise of victory means we fight from a place of victory and not defeat. Just think about, just think about in your struggles, in your spiritual life. What would it mean for you if your mindset changed and rather than seeing yourself as a failure struggling to overcome, you saw yourself as an overcomer? Struggling just to stay in that spot. Because that's what we are. We are, as disciples of Jesus, we're not failures trying to overcome. We have overcome through Christ. He has won the victory. We are in the victor's position. How would it change our our attitude and the way we fought if we understood we fought from victory and not defeat? We fought from power and not weakness. We do. Jesus offers us victory. Or, or Jesus, we may be enslaved by our past failures. I know, I know well what it is to look back over the past and be filled with regret. I grew up in church. I had pastors who talked about being saved. And it was like I got saved at five and once I told my mom no and I got angry once and stomped my foot. I know what it is to sin and I would think we are not the same. I know. I know what it is to waste much of my life. To miss opportunities to share the gospel to to just Live in, in all manner of vile sin. And at times, 
my past failures would overwhelm me if it wasn't for this. That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Jesus is a redeemer. And he can redeem all things in our lives for our good and for his glory. Now, I love this because it's not just all the things that happen to us. I mean, there's a lot of things that have happened to us that have been bad and hard. And Jesus can redeem those. And he can use them for our good and his glory. But if that's all it was, it wouldn't be nearly as hopeful. Because my life is filled with failures, not just of things that were done to me, but just me. I just did it. And all things means all things. Jesus is so great that he can take my failures, my rebellion, the things I've done that were just flat wrong. And he can redeem them. And he can use them. For my good, for his glory, to advance his kingdom on the earth. Maybe you don't struggle. But I could easily be enslaved by my past failures and just hold up and feel bad. But I serve a redeemer. And he sets me free from that. And he can set you free from it as well. Drifting through life. easy to drift through life. It's easy to do really just kind of do nothing. And there's a point, though, to where that becomes a form of enslavement. We we know there's more. I mean, within all of us, the Bible says that that God has planted eternity in our hearts. And a part of what that means is we know there's there's more. We know we know we're meant to matter. We're to do we're, we're meant for more than eating and sleeping and watching TV and Feeding our flesh and doing those things. There's just a point where we say there has to be more than this. And there is. Because we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we could walk in them. We were created and saved on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose. And we find this purpose through Jesus. He can he can deliver us. He can set us free. From the kind of life that where we just drift and meander and follow the, the course of this world that is laid out for us. Fear. Many people live in fear. They're just overwhelmed by it. They can't do anything for fear. And yet, what we're promised is that's not from God. Rather that we have been given a, a spirit of power, of love, and of discipline. We don't have a spirit of fear that enslaves us, but we have the spirit of adoption enabling us to cry out, Abba, Father. If we live in fear, there is freedom from that in Christ. And there's many more. Jesus came to set the captives free. So whatever captivates us, whatever makes us prisoners, whatever enslaves us, Jesus' death on the cross is powerful enough to break the chains and break the hold and set us free. 
And then lastly, and this is just a quick point. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. This essentially means today is the day of salvation. But notice in Isaiah, this is interesting. To proclaim the favorable day of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. If we turn to Luke 4, 16-21, we would see Jesus end at the favorable year of the Lord. He didn't mention teaching about vengeance. He intentionally left it out because His first coming was not about vengeance. His first coming was about salvation. The first coming of the Messiah, Christmas, is not about God's vengeance. It's about God's salvation. Second time. Second time will be about God's vengeance. What this means for us today is, while there is a day of God's vengeance against sin and punishment coming, right now we're in a time of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. When Jesus returns, it'll all change. No more mercy, no more grace, no more forgiveness. Just the sheer, pure judgment of God. But that day hasn't happened yet. And that's an intentional aspect, an intentional act on God's part. God's Word tells us in Second Peter that Jesus intentionally delays His return for one reason. And one reason only. It's to give people an opportunity to turn from their sins. To turn to Jesus and receive everything that He offers to them. Today is the day of salvation. In our main text, our main thought, the only point, main point for today is this. Salvation was and is the mission of the Messiah. Came to save. And as we close, there's two things, two ways I want us to think about responding. First, for those of us who are disciples of Jesus, we know we've been born again. Let's be sure when we talk about Jesus, we talk about him in this way. We talk about he's the anointed one. He's the point of it all. He brings good news. He binds up broken hearts. And he releases captives. And he frees the prisoner. And he proclaims the favorable year of the Lord. He comforts those who mourn. He gives beauty for ashes. Oil of gladness instead of mourning. A cloak of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. He makes people... To oaks of righteousness who are planted by the Lord for the glory of the Lord. Let's be sure that we don't just take that one spot about the day of vengeance. And it's real. Please don't misunderstand me. It's there. But how often is that the focus of what we talk about Jesus? How often do we teach Jesus in such a way he's not good news to those who hear him? The good news is ultimately Jesus. 
He's the message. He's the one who heals the broken heart. He's the one who saves the poor. He's the one who releases the captives. He's the one who frees the prisoner. He's the one who makes the favorable year of the Lord. He's the one who comforts those who mourn. He's the one who gives beauty for ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. He's the one who gives the cloak of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. He's the one who makes people into oaks of righteousness planted by the Lord for the glory of the Lord. Our world needs good news. Jesus is the good news. Let's be sure. That's how we talk about Him. But I also want to give an invitation to those who haven't turned to the Lord. Have not embraced Jesus. Because today can be the day of your salvation. Today, the Lord Jesus Christ intentionally allowed you to wake up. And he gave you another opportunity to receive the salvation he offers. What he offers you, it is good news. And it brings great joy and it is for you. But it's not something automatically received. It's a message we must choose to embrace. We embrace it through repentance and faith. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. Repentance begins by recognizing God is right and we are wrong. God is right about our sin. We have sinned. It is against Him. Our sin is serious. Our sin makes us judiciously guilty in the courtroom of God. And our sin prevents us from being righteous or good. Or to put it in the context of the story we read earlier, we are all the tax collector. We are all the one who simply should beat their breasts and say, oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Repentance leads us to turn to God from our sins, seeking forgiveness. The turning is critical. It's not enough to feel bad. There's a. Turning away from our sin, a a renouncing of our sin. It's costly at this point. We have to renounce our former way of life, cast it off and and embrace Jesus and the new way of life he intends for us to live. There is no repentance without this turning, without this renouncing and this embracing. But repentance is ultimately fueled not by anything other than our Our belief, our faith in Jesus. The belief isn't meant in a general way. It's not enough to believe there is a God out there somewhere. It's not even enough to believe that there is a man named Jesus who lived, that he was real. What we're to believe is very specific and very narrow. And it is it is Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. In faith, we believe in the person and the work of Jesus on our behalf. We believe that he died on the cross for our sin. Not not sin out there somewhere. Our sin personally. We believe he rose from the dead on the third day. And we believe, and this may be the most important aspect of it. That his death, his resurrection are the only hope for salvation we have. 
There are no good works we have ever done or ever can do to merit our salvation. Again, to put it in the context of our story, if we're still like the Pharisee, oh God, I thank you that I'm not as other people. Look at all of these good things I've done. Dear friend, if that is our attitude, we are not saved. We have not repented. We have not believed. Belief renounces all of that and says only through Christ can I be saved. There is no hope in me. There is no hope in my morality. There's no hope in my goodness. There's no hope in anything I do. My hope is only and wholly in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done on my behalf. Well, the natural response, if I truly believe that I'm saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm certainly going to live for the one who saved me. These are individual responses each one of us must make for ourselves. You must be the one to repent. You must be the one to believe. No one can do it for you. If you've never called on Jesus to save you, I urge you today. This is the favorable day of the Lord. This is an opportunity Jesus has given you. Repent, believe, and be saved. Let's stand. I'll pray have a moment to respond afterward. If you need to come forward, you you do. If you want to pray where you are, you do that too. Where you are isn't nearly as important as what you're doing. Father, I love you today. I thank you for Jesus. One day the good news reached me. Thank you. For the many times, the many ways you have bound up my broken heart. Thank you for the ways that you have freed me. The ways you're continuing to free me. Oh Lord. Repent, Father. The times I've not shared Jesus' good news. Have your way today, Lord, in all of our hearts, in all of our lives. Today be the day of salvation. Today be the day. We draw nearer to Christ. Let today be the day we experience the, the good news of great joy. The freedom that Christ gives. Save souls. Bind up broken hearts. Set captives free. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you need to come forward, the altars are open.